I can, I can experience my fear and nobody would know. But as soon as I open my mouth, that's too much. Now my fear is in relationship to other people and it's beyond my capacity to handle. And so I love being able to help people understand the nature of fear, that it's all related back to feeling something. I believe that all fear comes back to something that I don't want to feel. And so a huge part of the healing process of learning how to be in one's truth is learning how to be in your own feeling. Like if I want to be free, I have to be willing to feel. And once again, kind of like echoing on like, what is freedom? It's not not having consequences, but it's expanding my capacity to feel the fullness of the human experience. Welcome to the Wild on Purpose podcast, a place for those deeply committed to knowing themselves and embodying their authentic purpose in the world. I'm your host, Kelly Wild Miller. In this show, we gather to discuss what it truly means to lead by our essential nature and uncage our greatest gifts so we may share them with others. We'll be exploring an expansive range of topics from health and healing, spirituality and consciousness, to relationships, work, and more. As we turn over many stones, we'll uncover a golden thread inviting us to rewild our bodies and minds while awakening our souls and stepping more fully into our purpose. Thank you for being here and please enjoy this wild conversation. Greetings, wild ones. Wow. This episode with Jenny Lee stirred something alive in me. Jenny is an embodiment mentor, vocal empowerment coach, breathwork facilitator, and musician out of Hood River, Oregon. And in this conversation, we dive into the psycho-spiritual meaning of speaking and standing in our truth. So what does this even mean to stand in our truth and why is it so important? And how do we actually do it in a way that is constructive, generative, and helpful, not only to our own lives, but also those around us? Jenny breaks it down why, quote unquote, speaking our truth out loud and being witnessed in it can literally transform and heal our relationship with ourselves and with others. One of the things I loved most about this conversation is our exploration about authentic truth within relationships. Truth and authenticity can very easily be weaponized to position ourselves against someone or something else. But Jenny shares why that's not actually coming from an embodied place. In order for us to really stand in our truth, we need to learn how to do it in connection with others and with consideration to our nervous systems, our attachment styles, and the particularities of our upbringing. So this conversation is for those who have a tendency to self-abandon, withhold their opinions and desires, feel limited in their ability to express authentically, have a history of being silenced by others, and just are ready to step into true empowerment. So let's dive in and get to the truth of it all with Jenny Lee. Welcome, Jenny, to the podcast. It is so delightful to have you here. Thank you for joining me. So sweet to be here, um, to be coming in and having this connection the day after Thanksgiving too feels really special to just continue to weave meaningful conversations and talk about what it's like to be alive in this moment. Ah, beautiful. Well, the first question that I kick off every episode with is where in the world are you 
And what does the natural environment look like outside your doors? Yes, beautiful sense of place. I'm currently in Carnation, Washington. I'm at my brother's house. And outside the windows, there's a lot of tall, old, skinny maples that have lost their leaves. A lot of old growth cedar stumps that unfortunately have been cut down. So there's a lot of memories of more ancient beings living around. And there's a lot of dogs that love to communicate with each other. And there's a lot of cute little houses that are surrounding this teensy-weensy lake called Lake Joy. And so we went on a little walk around the lake this morning and just got to... Nobody else wanted a cold plunge. So I resisted the urge to get naked in front of my entire family. But in my mind, I put my body in the water and that was enough. (laughs) (laughs) I can understand wanting to just dive into a cold body of water when you're outside. There's something so primal about cold plunging in nature. Yeah. Hilariously enough, um, last year, my family was at my house for Thanksgiving and I live on the Hood River and we went on a walk in the morning and I don't have any neighbors. So I got to do the cold plunge and my family just stood on the riverbank and supported lovingly. And that was it. And it's, it's such a, especially when there's other people that don't want a cold plunge and you're the one that knows the, the beauty of it. People look at you like you're absolutely crazy. And it's so funny to just hold that, hold that line for the family in some way to be like the one that's willing to go into the water. Mm-hmm. Johnny and I like to cold plunge in the river that runs through Boulder and it's right by the university. And so we'll be in this freezing cold river, just like howling and shivering and doing all the things and just like immersing ourselves in it. And just people will be sitting next to it, looking at us like we are absolutely crazy. And then every once in a while, someone else will jump in with us. And there's this immediate sense of camaraderie with that person. It's like, yeah, I see you for your willingness to do this work, this practice. Yeah. And it's so fun to feel into how, how close all these different ways of being are in relationship to each other. You know, like maybe they didn't get in the water, but they're like with you. They're still in relationship and in community and in king with it. And it's, I always get the sense that I'm like doing it for all the people that don't know yet. Sometimes it helps with the stabbing pain that can come with ice punching. (laughs) Well, I salute your bravery. And this actually leads to the next question that I ask everybody, which is, in what ways were you a wild young child and how is that viewed by your family of origin? Oh my God. Hilarious. Right. Um, yeah, the, the, the image of my family just standing on the edge of the river while also like I get naked when I go into the cold water. And it was really funny last year to see like my family, like turn away when I would get naked and get into the water. And I'm like, what? of all the places where my naked body should be like is not be uh, turned away from would be my family. You know, I get naked in front of all kinds of people. Um, and so that as a, as an image always really, uh, makes me laugh, but yeah, I grew up, um, without a whole lot of parental influence. My mom, both my mothers left when I was 10 and then my dad, was working full-time and was a full-time musician at night as well. So there was just a lot of space for me to explore without a lot of consequence. Turns out 
consequence completely exists. And it's been a, a bit of a bumpy road growing up to learn how um, the real world, I'm just air quoting for everyone that's not watching. <laughs> There's a lot of air quotes in this part. Um, absolutely does have consequence. And so it took a long time to play out the archetypes of the rebel, of the black sheep, of like the wild child, of the feral. And this is what we've spoken to briefly before of lawlessness coming from a place of just not knowing what it felt like to have consequence. And my, like, let's say I would get grounded and my dad was working at the bar. And so he wouldn't come home till three o'clock in the morning. And I had already thrown a party and cleaned up while I was grounded before he even got home. And I just got really clever at learning how to navigate from my own self-orientation and ultimately, as one could assume, that created a pretty um, slightly dangerous upbringing, getting into a lot of tricky situations and cultivating a sense of self that wasn't in relationship to elderhood at all or people that have been through more experiences than me. But what it did grant me, like the gift within the, the wildness, was a sense of self-trust and choice-making that had to be really well bolstered on my own experience instead of that, which I was told, like I didn't have religion. Um, yeah, there, there wasn't a lot of conditioning that I then had to grow up and learn how to unwind, which gifted me a sense of as an adult coming into who do I want to love? Who do I want to believe in as a power greater than myself? What is the thing that I'm drawn towards that lives in nature or in song or that's more than me, that's not being just told to me that I have to um, believe in. And so it was a long, fun, windy road. And it probably wasn't until the last six years that my family um, kind of started to look at me through a different lens of curiosity and um oh god just intrigue right because i think there's a quality of life that gets to come from being free and a quality of life that gets to come from having an open-hearted sense of relationship with the world and not buying what's sold or not taking the path that i should have taken that has gifted me a lot of deep wisdom and a lot of insights and a lot of connection to life itself that the rest of my family doesn't seem to really have. And so now there's a bit of a, the way that I used to be looked at as, um, oh no, is Jen going to be okay? <laughs> Has flipped into, I wonder what's going on. I wonder what she's doing. Like my mom actually took the first round of my vocal empowerment course, which was awesome and fun and hilarious. And that was a moment in our relationship that was like a lifetime's worth of full circle. Like, wow, look at, here we are. Like my, my mother's letting me be her teacher. And that was really something special that we haven't, that we never could have thought would have happened if you would have talked to me years ago. And so there's been this beautiful reclamation of understanding and compassion and surrendering to the path that I chose in comparison to the rest of my families. 
which is really something that I know a lot of families don't get to experience. And I can feel the part of me that didn't want to give up, um, especially with my mother on cultivating a kind of relationship that I deeply craved and it worked. Right. And it took a really, really, really long time to be able to come to this deeply loving, deeply understanding, deeply um, accepting non-judgmental place with my, with my family. And it was worth the, the wait was worth the discomfort, you know? Mm, Beautiful. I'm really grateful for that. Thank you for sharing, Jenny. Yeah. What I'm really hearing is a, a very unique story in, I guess, like the macro themes of how children are raised in America or in the West, where there is a lot of conditioning and structure and rules, and you have to be a certain way in order to live within that family dynamic. And it sounds like yours, it was almost the the opposite. There was so much space, really no boundaries. And so like a child, in a way, almost like raising yourself or it, like being raised by wolves in a way, being raised out in the wild, within your wildness, I'm sure you ran with kids in your neighborhood or like other feral beings and how oh, that yeah. has apps. Like I'm so fascinated by that because that's what I've been kind of going. That's what I've been trying to reclaim myself is that sense of mm-hmm. freedom to be and to express and to explore without the fear of an invisible hand of the invisible mother that lives within me, you know, slapping me on the back of the wrist or, you know, the, the fence that's not actually there, but I perceive it to be there. And, and yet you also explained so beautifully how even growing up more wild, more feral had its limitations too, in terms of Mm -hmm. almost, almost like too much freedom and that you had to learn where, like, what are, what do I really want to play? What's the arena that I really want to play And any arena still has its boundaries. And it's like that sweet spot between limitation and boundlessness that really gives us the arena for our lives to play in. And so you and I have been finding our way back, but like from the two poles of the experience. (laughs) And I think that's really important to, to speak on or to remember that I've been contemplating a lot about how freedom does not mean lack of consequence. And as a child, I was seeking so much freedom that also wanted to believe in this narrative that the rules don't apply to me. And it really like specifically the last week, like there's a maturity in our own definition of freedom or wildness that doesn't include or doesn't believe the false narrative that my actions won't have an equal opposite reaction or impact or consequence in the world. And so I've been understanding that freedom includes the humility to know that my actions will create other reactions and responses in the field. And that that's part of the freedom. And that is part of what can influence my choice making. Not that I get to be separated from the relationality of every single choice that I make. Right. But that everything that I do does have impact. And so how do I want to use my power of choice knowing that instead of pretending like that, fundamental law of the universe doesn't actually exist. 
Yes. This is bringing up my, the framework that I've created that I'm gradually sharing with the world where it, to me, it's actually a very early immature standpoint within the feral stage to believe that what I do does not impact others. It does not impact the world. It's this kind of like, <laughs> for those not watching the video, it's like, it's got my middle fingers up and I'm just like, fuck everything. I'm doing me, you do you. But without the understanding of like, that actually impacts everything. There's a rippling effect there and there are consequences, whether they're seen or unseen in our lives. And that a more mature, generative, interdependent way of being in the world is wild. And it reminds me of the story of um, when wolves were extinct in Yellowstone and how the whole natural environment shifted. The rivers even changed their shapes and then they reintroduced wolves to the environment. They took their natural place in the ecosystem and the whole ecosystem changed. The rivers changed their shape. It's just, you know, how they eat, the predators and the way other animals navigated the landscape, which then changed the foliage and then it changed the rivers. And it's this cascading series of events where you take one thing out of an equation and the whole, the whole game changes. And so I really love that, of that you finding your definition of freedom in the knowing that what you do actually matters and has impact. Well, I think it's like pointing back towards like a very fundamental, I don't know, the, the word that's coming up is flaw in our nuclear family dynamics is that I'm alone. And if I feel like I'm truly alone, it's so easy to put the middle finger up and be like, fuck it. I'm going to steal. I'm going to party. I'm going to lie. I'm going to, you know, because there's a sense of separation or like a deanimation from the world that we're living in, including my own body, right. Or something like this. And so the, the healing does come from remembering coming home to the truth of interbeing of interconnectivity of complete kinhood with all of life, not even just our human family. And yeah, without that, all wildness is going to be probably like, yeah, the, the uninitiated, rebellious um, teenager that just wants to cause harm. Because I think underneath it all, there's a deep sense of suffering and hurting because of a sense of alienation, because there hasn't been an offering from the family structure or from the community or from the culture that taught most young people in the Western world Hey baby, you're part of everything. And that doesn't mean that you have to be caged by that, but you can be so free within this kind of interweaving with all of life. Mm -hmm. And we, I think oftentimes I see this in, um, <laughs> like avoidant attachment styles <laughs> where there's this feeling that attachment and connection will limit freedom. And I just don't believe in that. Mm -hmm. I think that freedom can come from a deep surrendering to connection and intimacy and the interplay of what I do does have impact and what loving you will impact me and like being willing to surrender to that level of relationality to me has been the new game instead of the solo rebel on a mission who just wants to, I mean, classically fuck around and see what happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would argue that that developmental stage of 
the unruly teenager, the fuck it, I'm just going to do my own thing without a sense of interbeingness is an actual necessary stage in our development because I do think rebelling from the family of origin or the way the cages that they're brought up in is a sign of an early sign of accessing sovereignty inside themselves. It's just coming out in a unhealthy way because we've lost rites of passages. We've lost initi healthy, initiatory, multi-generational experiences. So teenagers are doing it themselves through recklessness, through alcohol. I did this through drugs, through pr pr promiscuity, stealing. God, I did all of that. And it's like, for me, it was my first feeling of actually being alive and doing something that I choose to do. And I think my, my, my perception is a lot of people get stuck there and they don't keep evolving onward, which will eventually lead them through those humility experiences where they're like, oh, wait, you know, there's a little softening that happens of like, yes, I'm allowed to be sovereign. I am sovereign. And it's sovereignty within connection, mm. within community. And it feels like that's a massive shift that our collective is trying to make right now. Yeah. Of this hyper independence, which is destroying us into, you know, as Charles Eisenstein says, like a sense of interbeing that we're here yeah. to be within community and within connection of others. And that's been lost for so many generations now that we're, we're learning how to reclaim it. Yeah. You know, something that when you speak to that, that I've had to learn how to articulate in a new way, because whatever I'm a self-empowerment coach <laughs> is that self-empowerment is not the end of the road mm. and it's an important step. And I, um, Carolyn Meese has influenced a lot of my work and I love modern day mystics, um, especially women. And there's this move from like, where does the authority live? And like what you're speaking to is the authority starts out tribal, my family, my community, my school, my teachers, my peers, all of this begins to have authority at a young age. And then we have to, we don't have to, and then we're invited to <laughs> move into personal authority. How do I actually feel? What do I actually want? Moving away from the people pleasing and maybe the structured religions or whatever, however that can manifest outside and come into the center and be like, what is, what is Jenny's innate orientation in the world? What do I feel? How do I feel when I'm around this person? What is my body and like coming into the self experience. And that feels so good for so many people because it's, it can be more challenging to come into the sense of self mm. in, well, <laughs> in a community where that's not always celebrated or it can even be shunned or like ashamed upon of like, don't care about yourself, care about others. Like this broadly popularized martyr archetype that has, has been going around and self-empowerment is not the end of the road. And what I see oftentimes in this line of work, air quotes, um, in a lot of self-healing personal development work is that it feels so good to come into a sense of self-empowerment that people can also get stuck there mm -hmm. because it's like, it's this whole reclamation of like, Oh, I no longer care about what people think about me. And I like love myself for the first time. And that's so important, but it's also, in my opinion, the middle path of the road. And then coming back to relationality, coming back to community, coming back to surrendering, 
your personal will to the divine will? Like, where does the path then continue to evolve to? And how do we then take this well-bolstered sense of self and give it back to the thing that is greater than us? And that could be God or that could be your community. But either way, there's something significantly greater than the self. But we have to learn how to be in full selfhood to then be able to surrender it. Does that make sense? It makes 100% sense to me. I, <laughs> yeah, you're tracking my framework beautifully. It reminds me of the work of Bill Plotkins. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him and uh-huh. the wilderness-based yeah. vision quest that he leads and has created. And in his book, The Journey of Soul Initiation, he talks about in order to live a life led by soul, you actually first need a pretty well-developed ego. And that well-developed ego is the ego of self who is empowered and knows that they can do stuff in the world and knows that they matter. And then there is a deep surrender of those capacities and capabilities to that thing that is greater, the thing that's greater within themselves, which is, in, uh, you know, obviously connected to the whole. And I love what you said. It's like, it's a, you're giving it back. It could be giving it back to your family. It could be being a very um, secure mother who is giving back to her children. It could be being a community leader. It could look like so many different things. Uh, It's just the, the, the essence and the impulse within us that where we know where we are in that path. Yeah. And, you know, I've thought a lot about religion because I didn't have it. Um, even in the slightest. And so as an adult, I'm like, wait, you believed what? They told you to do what? What was, you know, and I get to look at it from this lens of curiosity, but also like, what? (laughs) And something that's really interesting that I've heard from people in my life that were like devoted to different, you know, iterations of religion is that seemingly they promote a sense of service before a cultivated sense of self which is like, what is the damages of jumping ahead and being like, be of use to your community, be in this Jesus archetype. And my first question is always like, what was Jesus's adolescence? Pretty sure he was probably out there cultivating a deep sense of self before he was in service. And those are like the years that nobody, more air quotes over here, <laughs> nobody knows what was <laughs> happening. And just the way that this, this part of the path of coming into one's own identity, mythopoetic identity, sense of self, sense of soul, reorientation to being the center of one's own life is a fundamental step. But yeah, once again, not to be confused as the end goal, right? Self-empowerment, self-awareness, a well-bolstered ego is not really the, the place that we're heading. It's a stop along the wild and windy journey towards, you know, and I don't want to insert my understanding or my idea of like what the end game is here because it's so ineffable. Um, but I do feel like the end game has a texture that, that is reweaving ourselves back into oneness with all things that the end game, I don't, I do not believe is just the lone wolf at the top who did a good job and did everything we wanted to do and, and like won the game. I just don't think that's actually what we're here to do. Mm, Beautifully put. Yeah, it's beautiful. So Jenny, there's so many threads that we could pull on there. I'm so curious, the, the wildness of your upbringing and the fact that you've been able to cultivate 
the knowledge that you have and this, this freedom to express yourself, to speak your truth, how is that informing what you do in the world now? Anna. Okay. This is interesting. I love the emergent feel as always. And what's coming up for me in this moment, as you ask that question is like a burning desire, like a deep care that's kind of woven with a deep sorrow to feel a sense of belonging in the world, because that was like the shadow side of being so wild and not really having a a family structure that had much density to it was underneath the wildness was a deep, deep sense to, to want to belong to something. So I, I, I belonged to the wildness. I belonged to the rebellion. Right. And the older I've gotten, I feel like there's a lot more beautiful ways to cultivate belonging and underneath all of it, love and connectivity and relationship became uh, my religion, became the North Star. And I followed that path for a really long time. And then also underneath that, the love that I was looking for the whole time was the love of my, of my own heart. And there was a lot of, and I know this is really harsh, but there was so much like self-hatred along the road of my childhood and my upbringing that it created the perfect condition for me to be an advocate and an adversary for deep, deep self-love. And once again, not in the way that's just self-serving, but in the way that pours out of me and nourishes my relationships. And part of my upbringing from the ages of, I mean, 20 to 30, there's 10 years where I had very severe bulimia. So there was this deep embodied experience of like, God, I mean, it's self-harm at that point. There was just so much self-hatred. And I, I, I realized at an early age how not unique I was. You know, nine and a half out of 10 women that I talked to have had or still struggle with eating disorders, you know? And so there was like the, the path of suffering and the more that I rode the, the line of the suffering, I realized how connected to everything I was. And so as in my now moment, you know, with vocal empowerment, truth training, music, being an embodiment coach and, and wanting to like be a humble servant to the empowerment of specifically women, it all comes from a path of feeling um, how hard it can be to love yourself in a world that like, you know, I feel like I was just shaped by my environment, you know? And I think there's so many of us that are moved as David White would call it. Like we're the, we just assume the shape of the sail, but we don't get to control the wind. And broadly, a lot of our culture is not deeply rooted in soul initiation or self-love, you know? And so I just feel really inspired and completely devoted to having these conversations, to offering contemplative, introspective containers for people to come back into their own sense of knowing, into their own felt reality of, of, of love as a state of being that they are included in. And the more they go inside of, the more I go, the more we all go into the depth of our 
truth and our vulnerability, that's the places where we're actually the most connected to each other. And it's so interesting to me and it's so beautiful and it's actually really like playful to, to take myself and others on this like inward spiraling journey of coming home to oneself. And that's the place that we get to belong to because the more that there's this desire for belonging outside of myself, it's, it's very weird out there. It's a strange world that we live in and I don't get to control, I mean, anything, but especially the external environment. And so I just became really aware of how the belonging to oneself is kind of the only path. And then that gets to then be the, the gift because on one hand, the more that I belong to myself, I don't need to outsource that to my community and expect other people to offer me the sense of belonging, to expect my community to affirm me or acknowledge me, right? There's a sense of self that then liberates our community and our families and our beloveds from having to hold that for us. So then when we go to relate to people, we're not relating from a place of unmet needs. We're relating from a place of curiosity and love. And I think that's the kind of community that we're all craving. But what I see happen so much, what I saw so much in my own upbringing was relating to others and looking for the sense of belonging from a place of, um, God, what's coming up is like this hollowness inside. And then there's all this projections, there's all this codependency, there's all this like shadow that gets to be plastered onto the backdrop of my friends or my community that then inevitably, inevitably does not create um, the healthiest relationships and can even probably reiterate a sense of isolation. And so what does healthy relationship looks like? And, and it starts with the self. Oh, and it starts with just loving the self so much. And it's just a really fun path. <laughs> Feeling safe. Thank you. You're bringing up so much for me about my own path and finding that sense of false wholeness in the ways that other people want you to be or the ways you think you should be and looking at the way everybody else is operating as the instruction manual for how you should operate. And when you construct a life like that, when you construct an identity structure, it's, it's like building your identity structure on a house of cards, right? Like, cause it's all false and inevitably it uh, will get, it will get uh -huh. blown over. And I think that is where the midlife crisis, the quarter life crisis, I think it's why so many people between the ages of 27 and like 31 right now, you know, they call it the Saturn return are like crumbling in their identities. It can happen at any age, but because they've built their entire sense of self on everything outside of themselves and that coming home, that reclamation of self yeah, it's healing codependency. It's healing the shoulds. It's, and it's a sticky, messy process as I'd love to dive into more about how you're specifically holding people in these, in this inquiry through your course. But it is also the most essential process that we can go through. And if we genuinely want to give back to other people, like it is the thing we have to do. We can't keep people pleasing as a way to generate love because it's so false. Wait, what? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> what? I've been doing this whole time. 
I mean, that's one of the biggest points of like grief and deep compassion that, that really kind of rips me open time and time again is in my own life, how many times, I mean, we, if I can't speak for others, but I've changed who I am has changed so much. The more that I've become devoted to authenticity and wanting to live ecstatically and emergently and, and beautifully and emotionally. And a lot of people that I, that I work with have the deep fear of exactly what you're saying. I've built this life around me. And if I become who I really am, these people won't love me. They won't understand me. I'll have to get a new job. I might have to leave my husband. What are they going to think? And it's no small thing to like look at the life that you've created that's maybe only skin deep or based on a false self or however you want to language it and be like, shit, that's not me. And it's not like this quick fix where you're like, okay, well, I'm just going to learn how to be more authentic and start speaking my truth more. And maybe all these things will come along with me because that's often not the case. You know, and it's always really interesting when, like I've had a handful of vocal empowerment clients that we were working together for a while and they would call and say, I can't do this. If I keep working with you, I'm going to leave my marriage and I can't afford to do that right now. And that's a real experience. Not everybody is actually in a place where they are comfortable enough or stable enough to invite in as much change as maybe you or I are inviting them into. And this is why I love to think of whatever, self-empowerment, uh, soul connection. It's, it's kind of humorous to even try to like name this experience of coming home to one's own authentic experience of being alive. But it can be a slow evolution that mirrors the capacity of the nervous system and begins to like move and open and breathe at a pace that doesn't have to be adding more trauma to something that's already kind of terrifying. Right. But that just, I just want to name that. Oh God, how do I say it? There's just a lot of people, including me, that's like, come into my truth training class and learn how to speak your truth and change your life. And that's just actually not accessible for a lot of people. And I don't want to be coming from a place of naivety that, you know, I guess all this to say there's quite, there's a privilege aspect to being able or like um, being at a certain point along the, the journey to be able to choose to step into a more authentic experience, right? Because for some people, it truly is just not quite safe enough yet. And I just don't see that being spoken to enough, you know? Yeah. A few things come up for me. One is a quote that I've lived by for a couple of years now in my healing journey, which is to move at the pace of grace. Yeah. Right. It's so like, I might, I might, I might hear somebody like three years ago, if I had heard somebody like you talking about truth training and stepping into my authentic self, I, I would have given you my credit card so fast to be like, give me that experience. And I did, I did pay a women's empowerment business specific coach, a lot of money to help me in that process. And I went, I blew through my nervous system's window of tolerance. And I, I would love to talk to you about the nervous system and how it relates to this. And I, and so funny. In her container is when I posted on social media and revealed to the world that I had lived a double life as a stripper. And the photo that I did that with was a 
a semi-naked picture where I put bomb emojis over my nipples and the very top like phrase was truth bomb. And then I like, like spilled my guts. And although it was actually very well received and I didn't receive a lot of explicit negative commentary about it, it was so far out of my window of tolerance that after I did it, I went into a full like eight month shutdown period where I got off of social media. I basically deleted everything and I pendulum swung back. And I was, and so that really taught me like, yes, I want to drop truth bombs. I want to be fully revealed online and tell my story authentically. And I'm doing it now, but it took like close, like another two years for me to slowly gradually embody what that truth is inside of myself so that I can hold the charge and the frequency of being that out in the world. And it's a, it was a godsend that I ended up marrying a nervous system researcher for Johnny, right? Where I actually came into close contact with the wisdom of the nervous system and and how we we titrate up, you know, that's the scientific word. We which is basically we just gradually increase that window of comfort or and we gradually step into that discomfort zone. We don't go blasting into the fear zone because that just creates shutdown and it has a an adverse reaction. And so I would love to hear your perspective while you're doing truth training, while you're helping people step into their authenticity, what have you learned about the nervous system as it pertains to truth and authenticity? And um, some of the other notes I have here is also talking about attachments, which is very connected to the nervous system as well, attachment styles. Yeah. What have you come across in your own research and your own journey? Amen. I'm just really grateful for this conversation. You know, it just, it's, it really matters. And also coming into a felt sense and a, and a sense of honoring of where you're at in your nervous system is a huge act of self-love. I think there's a lot of times where I wanted to be a certain way and my body was like, <clears throat> no. And the way that I would just silence myself, my body, my nervous system, my felt perception of what was going on and over mentalize something to try to have a certain outcome. You know, it's like, that's just perpetuating self-abandonment. And so coming, no matter the pathway, all of this is pointing back to, in my experience, what's your relationship like with your body? One, I believe that truth is an embodied experience. It's not a mental experience and the body can't lie. So I help people come back into what is your, what is your, physical, intuitive, emotional, like what is your nervous system telling you, right? What is your body telling you? Where does your truth live in your, in your body? And repairing the relationship from the sense of self, the mind, the mental functioning to the physical awareness that I think is completely honest. I don't think there's a lot of ability for the body to lie. I think the body can hold memory and maybe get triggered from old traumas and these kinds of things, but it's still honest. And so all of, um, oh, how do I say this? <sighs> patience, right? And patience is how we repair the relationship to ourself first and foremost. And I think for most people, including myself, 
the pace that my body needed to go and is still going. Like I've, because of the wildness, I cultivated a very hypervigilant state. If you think about like a a baby bunny (laughs) out in the woods at a young age, why did this come to mind? This is hilarious. And if I'm a young person with no one to protect me, I'm absolutely going to become hypervigilant, right? And that's an adaptive state that my nervous system got to exist in for a long time. And that pattern still lives within me fully. And I don't know if my goal is to like not be hypervigilant, but what if my path, and this is true that it has been, to come home and learn what that means for me, to learn about my state instead of trying to change my state. And so much of what I feel, uh, what I really care about is accepting and learning about what is instead of trying to constantly make change, you know, and this is how we open the pathway of acceptance. And the more that I can for myself and for others, you know, what is the truth that exists in the field right now? Not the truth that you would like, you know, the truth is I'm feeling anxious right now, or the truth is I, I don't feel particularly intelligent at the moment or whatever. Like, even if the truth has like a tinge of self-judgment, when we can allow ourselves to be just with the truth that's in the field without needing to change it, this is where I see miracles happen. But every time the mind or the sense of self or the awareness is going into the nervous system or going into the body with um, like the the flag that's like, we're going to come here and like, for lack of better words, colonize or make change instead of coming to the, to the body to say, wow, I'm just going to come to listen and see what's happening here. That's how the repair happens. And especially in the context of truth as an invited experience, I feel like most of our truths that are really deep are not ones that we would prefer. And so then the, the edge, the window of tolerance in, in your language, right, is can I make space to allow myself to have a truth that I've been told is not good or that is bad or like in the judgment in the binary or whatever? Like, what if one of my... um truth over the past few years that liberated me was I love being jealous. What? Why would I like being jealous? And Carolyn Elliott's work, um, she wrote the book Existential Kink. And that's a, that's a winner for everybody. Like that level of shadow work of like going into the sensation of the experience. And one of her um, axioms is having this proof of wanting. Um, And that's really liberating, but you have to be really humble for this kind of like shadow curiosity to actually work, you know? And so I think underneath all of this, there's a deep sense of humility and um, willingness to be like, what if I don't know who I am? What if there's so much about myself that I'm still learning, especially in, okay, I've created this life around me that doesn't feel true. I want to live my more authentic expression. I want to come home to the sense of like my own, my own center, you know, and that needs to include a, a huge dose of curiosity to be like, who, who am I? 
And that question isn't something outside of oneself. It's going into the unconscious material and being like, whoa, wow, I'm totally weird. <laughs> whoa, I like, I like very strange things. And for those of you that aren't familiar with Carolyn uh, Elliott's work, um, she just is a proponent of going into the unconscious, taking an experience that you don't like, going into the somatic experience of it on an energetic level in real and asking yourself, what about this experience do I like? And then you get to take the judgment and the naming off of just an experience and say, okay, I'm feeling jealous right now. What do I love about jealousy? It makes me feel so alive. I am wide awake. I'm slightly turned on and I am fully present. Wow. I like those things. Jealousy is giving me these experiences. Great. Mm. And you can go take that like unconscious nugget, accept it, love it, and bring it into your conscious mind. You'd be like, wow, I just learned something new about myself. And so maybe so much of the work that I like to do for myself and others is this air quotes, shadow work. That's really just wholeness. It's really just a pathway of coming in to the unconscious, to the physical body, which is often referred to as the unconscious mind and saying, what's here? And it's kind of edgy in that way. And so once again, like, yeah, expanding into these edges, into this going under the water, and exploring the deep sea of your unconscious material in the capacity that you can actually handle it. Because if you go into the unconscious domains with the flashlight of judgment, you're going to continue to cause harm. And so how much of your own truth can you handle and still love it? So it's almost like the capacity is um, how much can I accept in a certain moment? How much can I love about myself? And if there's just too much on the plate, then, then what? I also have a hilarious way of thinking of the unconscious material as like the iceberg, right? Like 20% of ourself is conscious. And this is not an exact mathematical quote here. 80% of us is, is the iceberg that's under the water. And this is why I think relationships are so key in um, authenticity or in like self-expression and wanting to live in one's own truth, because it's really hard to see into our own unconscious material. And the nature of the unconscious wants to project itself onto something outside of you so that you can see it, so that you can integrate it back into your conscious awareness. Right? But as a metaphor, if we're icebergs, what happens when I'm on top of the iceberg and I'm looking, I'm trying to look under the water. I think of the surface of the water as like the veil and it's reflective. It's really hard to actually see under the water because the sun is shining back up, right? So technically I can be looking into my unconscious material, but metaphorically and, and in, the, in the way that we learn how to see ourselves, our eyes can't go inward. It's very hard to go into our own unconscious material without relationships. This is how we can break through the veil, the surface of the water, is by having people or experiences to mirror back to us those things. And this is why I love the group container or why I love one-on-one -on -one conversation so much and why it's so important to not just do all of this quote-unquote work by ourselves. Because we can't go as deep and we can't see ourselves nearly as much. This is my belief anyways. 
um, in solitude because it breaks the rule of, you know, the nature of interbeing in some way. And so it's all really a case for relationship. Beautiful. That was a tangent. That was beautiful. Tangent or not, I really loved everything that you just said. And that reminds me of Ram Dass's very simple yet profound quote that we are all walking each other home. And that was a big milestone in my healing development and journey was realizing that I needed to do it with other people and getting into containers, whether it was my vision quest, whether it was the, that woman's business container, which ultimately had both pros and cons to it. Um, or whether it's going and doing, sitting in a circle and doing plant medicine or sitting in a breathwork circle with other people and, or developing so much safety and trust with one other being. I have a handful of friends in my life who can fit this role, including my husband, where I feel so good about them reflecting back the parts of me that I can't see. And we've set up intentional relationship containers where we can say, you know, Hey, Hey, are you open to something? Are you open to a little bit of feedback right now? Cause I'm noticing this pattern in you. And I'm just curious if, if you're open to receiving what I'm seeing and exploring it with me. And you know, that sometimes that always doesn't feel like what I want in every given moment, but I will always make space for it eventually because I recognize that I'm here to become more whole and I need those reflections. And so also learning how to consciously, uh, authentically communicate those things in a way that maintains connection and relationality. And it's not like, mm -hmm. Hey Jenny, here's the shadow pattern that I'm seeing in you. And like, you really suck because you do this thing. It's like, no, it's like, Oh my God, I, it, there's a tenderness to it. There's a humanity to it of like, wow, here's, here's a part of yourself that I'm seeing in myself and we're doing this dance together. And, you know, you can really treat that with deep reverence when you have other people in your life who are willing to go there with you. And sometimes that isn't just a group container and instantly because of the field that a group container creates, you may not know any of these people. And yet you've come together and on like opening ceremony night, you're like, wow, I'm so held and seen by these people just because you've come together under a shared umbrella to do work together. Or it might be your longstanding best friend who's on this path with you and you cultivate that together. I mean, I think you're speaking to like the, one of the deepest fears that I see come up in vocal empowerment or truth training is that if I tell this person how I really feel, I'm going to lose that connection. And I did a masterclass a few days ago and I asked everybody, about control and then connection and control and connection are like the, the opposites of each other. Right? And if we want connection, then we can't have, we can't try to control the experience. And the, the piece that you're speaking to of, of compassion and asking permission, like, Hey, I'm feeling something. Can I offer this here is a huge piece that, that mm, it's just a skill that needs to be cultivated with a lot of people because I can name for my own self, I used to be like the radical truth teller that wasn't attuned to the other person's capacity, that wasn't attuned to the other person's availability to actually hear what I was saying. And then my truthing became self-serving. And that's not really what I'm promoting here. It's what can cultivate a deeper sense of connection either to myself, which is valuable, or to this relationship that I'm engaging in if, it's, if it is conversational or relational. And 
asking the other person for permission, right? But then also offering ourselves this, like when we go into our bodies to be like, hey, I'm, I want to connect with you, listening to our own bodies. Do you feel open to me like coming in with some inquiry right now? And so in all directions, in and out of there is like that deep need to attune to the thing that's being, that's in the field to, to connect to and not weaponize truth or authenticity. And I think that's people's greatest fear. And then there's just a cleverness with learning how to relate to people while still being authentic and still being honest and not feeding the narrative that that will then turn into conflict. Mm. This is for me becoming very full circle with something that we mentioned maybe 30 minutes ago or so around that earlier stage of our development where we start to learn about our own self. And when it's like when we start learning about our authenticity, there can still be this essence of rebellion, this essence of like me versus you. And, you know, it's a very common phrase these days to be like, well, well, my truth is that I don't want to be here right now. Or my truth is that like, I, I don't like you. And we're using, yeah, like you said, we're weaponizing the word truth and we're weaponizing this idea of authenticity, which is really just a, a spiritual mask on our resistance to developing deeper connections with this thing or to being in our discomfort or our unwillingness to be wrong still and have that sense of humility. And, you know, I, I'm in a authentic relating leadership training right now. And under the umbrella of authentic relating as an actual modality and practice, they teach us that we're here to balance both dignity and humility. And when we are in hyper dignity, it turns into posturing. It turns into, I am superior to you. I am above you. I know better, which there's a lot of spiritual ego, ego traps that can put us in that place. And then humility, if we're too far down the humility side of things and we're actually belittling ourselves, we're underneath other people, we start to fawn, we start to people please because we've put others on a pedestal. But when we're perfectly balanced in that dignity and humility, another way of thinking about it is being both teacher and student and holding these different energies at all times, then everybody is looking at eye level. Everybody is meeting each other as both the guru and the student, as both the God in me and, you know, and I am the God in you. It is, it is that dance of interbeing. And I think, I think what you spoke to, it's just, yeah, it's a beautiful expression of we're here to be authentic and to learn what that means and also do it in connection to the world around us, to the people around us, so that our authenticity is in service to something else. Absolutely. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that in so clearly and permissioning the the, the balance but oftentimes I can see, God, it's, it's so real the way that like the guy who fixed my computer the other day, he's like, what are you doing? What do you do for work? <laughs> I'm like, I'm a vocal empowerment coach. And he's like, I'm vocally empowered. He started just yelling. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, that's not. Okay. So those people <laughs> exist. And like the confusion around, I mean, part of what I teach also is let's define empowerment. 
let's define embodiment, right? Like let's define what we're actually talking about here. Let's define authenticity because another part of speaking one's truth and it is having a common understanding of the language that we're using. Because if you say, I don't feel safe. And I say, but I'm a safe person. And we haven't clarified to each other what safety means for each person. Then there's no intimacy in the field. There's no coherence in the field. And so I think that's a huge uh, key player that can help some of this um, increasing of the capacity to learn, uh, to live in one's own authentic experience is to just define the terrain a bit through language, which is ultimately the thing that we have to take this whole human experience and put it through this little portal of language to be able to connect to other people. Maybe we can go back to just body language and noise making someday, but for now language can be the limiting factor. And so even with authenticity, I think it would be fun to like hear what your definition of authenticity is. Yeah, definitely. I've recently been defining it as a congruence in my internal experience with how I'm expressing on the outside. So if I am feeling fearful, then I am in some capacity expressing and owning that. Like you said earlier, I I feel fear right now. And then like, oh, wow, I can really soften because I've honored what is happening on the inside of me. Or if I am if I am jealous of you and I don't actually express that or honor that in some capacity, then it's going to come out all weird and and kinked as Johnny and I like to say, like a garden hose that's kinked. And it's like the energy of jealousy is now going to come out in like passive aggressive behaviors and wanting to tear Mm -hmm. you down in some way or wanting to reveal something ugly about you so that it can make me feel more in you know, subtly empowered or whatever the thing is. And so authenticity for me is an honoring of what is inside of me and expressing that out in the world. But in a way, this is why I'm studying under the authentic relating modality is that I'm learning how to do that in a way that then maintains and actually strengthens connection with the other person or the other, the group or the community. And that, that's on more of like a micro level. I think when I think about authenticity as like the macro theme of my life and to kind of tie this in with what you said about people in your truth t- training containers might all of a sudden say like, wow, this is radically shifting everything in my life. The more I come into my authenticity and I understand what that is, the more it's confronting my work, my my marriage, my lifestyle, maybe the place that I live. And they're like, I have to radically shift everything. And and that can be true if we are so off course from our authenticity. It might be this m- massive recalibration back, which some people can do in one big decision and just say, screw it. I'm leaving. I'm going to go to India for six months and go meditate. You know, we hear stories of people that are like, they have the, the, the awakening, the dawning of what they really want and they go and do it. Other people, it'll be a gradual shift into right relationship with themselves. And so for me, authenticity on the macro level does mean like I am authentic in the place that I live right now. 
I love living in Boulder. I love living near the mountains. I love having trails outside my back doors. I'm authentic also in my willingness and desire to travel a couple months out of the year and go see other cultures and places. I'm authentic in the work that I'm doing. It's aligned for me. I'm authentic in my marriage. I know that this is a great partnership for me. And so when we come into that authenticity, we start to make those macro shifts in our lives, but it can, if everything's a hologram, like it can happen in just one little shift too. And something that you brought up is like, okay, well, maybe you don't have to leave your husband right now because it's really not good timing. And that's valid. You know, maybe you have two young kids and it's not a good idea to tear the household apart right now. And if you're just coming into your authenticity, I actually really recommend most people don't make big life changes like that. Like start smaller, start with like, maybe you can shift the way you're, you're actually relating to your husband. Maybe you can shift the dynamic between you guys in a small way. Maybe all you're needing is like one night out a week where you just focus only on yourself. And that starts to shift the energy into more authenticity in your life versus uprooting the whole damn tree. And I I think that is, that can be welcomed into this space of authentic expression more. So I think there's a glamorization of like, I'm going to leave everything and start a completely new life and look how amazing I am for doing that. When maybe you just need to change the color of the shoes you're wearing or start wearing makeup or, (laughs) you know, get a new hobby. It can be that small. And ultimately those small things might be very large. Yeah. It is a gift for the self, right? And I think that the the self relationship becomes the gift for the external relationships. And I love thinking uh, how simple it can be, right? Like if the truth is I don't love my husband and I don't want to be with him anymore, the action to take could be leave my husband. But if the action for many normal reasons isn't actionable at the moment, I can still not abandon my truth. I can say, this is how I still feel this way. And there's like a bolstered, nourishing, generative sense of self-connection and self-honor that can still exist in the field. Even if the external circumstances for 10,000 reasons can't exactly change. And it's kind of also flips the narrative of we're always trying to change our environment so that we can change our internal state of being to inviting people back into their own center to like, I know what my truth is and I don't really want to be here right now, but I am. And that's okay. But I can still name for me and others if they want to know, and it's safe for them to be in relationship with this depth of my truth. But yeah, this is a no for me and I'm going to do it anyways. Or, Hey, sorry, I said I was going to do that, but, but my truth is something different. And so it's just this deep nourishing self trust that we can often I mean, that, that is so easy to get knocked off the shelf and be like, wait a minute, I thought I knew what I wanted, but now I just heard what you, how you feel and I listened to how you feel and now I completely forgot how I feel. It can be uh, like, for, I'm speaking for myself here. I'm very emotionally empathetic and I have an emotional open and an open emotional center in human design and I'm learning more about this and it's like, okay, I think that we're all empathetic and my contemplation lately is how can I come back to my own emotions? I know my truth, but I can get so emotionally caught up in other people's experiences that I'll just feel what everybody else is feeling. Super fun game. And 
what do I need to do for me to be like, okay, I can see how everyone feels that way, but how do I actually feel in this experience? And that does or does not have to include an action, but then it bolsters like a deep embodied sense of, I know where I stand in relationship to all the other people standing in their truth. Mm. And it feels so good. Mm -hmm. And it's on, it's honestly becomes the gift. Like you were saying, because then I can relate to other people's truth, not by just joining them in theirs and assuming that their truth is also my truth. Most people don't want that. Most people don't want the responsibility. I think of like the people pleasing patterns. People don't want me just like, uh, despite what they think they want. I don't believe that you would just want me to agree with everything that you're saying all the time. I think that we crave authenticity and intimacy and contrast so much more than we think that we do than we've been conditioned to want, you know? And so by staying in our own centers, we have a much more diverse ecosystem. And if you think of the ecology model, like we need diversity or else things begin to die. And I love that as a hoorah for authenticity. It's like, yeah, we need diversity in the field or like things are going to start getting really weird as they already have. And we can see like the homogenization of personality or thought or nervous system capacity. That's not healthy in the slightest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. Mm. So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about your your understanding of the throat and the role that it plays in the throat chakra and the energetics of this part of our body. And the reason this is super important for me is I grew up with chronic sore throats. I had strep throat like at least twice a winter season as a kid, always on antibiotics, always get, you know, I was like a Amoxicillin was like a vitamin for me for many years because that was the go-to cure for my throat problems. And it wasn't until I met a woman who is like a singing empowerment and also a vocal empowerment, but more so through singing and sound. She lives down in Lake Atitlan in Guatemala. And she had this incredible story of having a very severe thyroid condition and in the thyroid is positioned, you know, around the throat. And nothing was fixing it. None of the Western medication, none of the Western pathways to healing her thyroid was, is, was working. And she was also very mute. She grew up in an environment where her parents muted her or her community. Like there was some reason why she just didn't feel comfortable speaking very much. And the way she healed her thyroid was by speaking her truth and by learning how to release sounds and make noise and take up space with the noise that comes out of her throat. And I worked with her a little bit and it was very, very empowering, very healing. And I've just recognized that the more I release my authenticity into the world in a way that is in connection with others, the more I literally feel the physiological section around my throat become healthier, become stronger. And I would just be so curious, what is your take on the connection between the energetics of speaking our truth and the literal throat and then also the chakra? Yeah, this is the, this is my favorite part is like the, the actual physical healing benefits, right? If I tell people, 
hey, the more you speak your truth, you'll like literally feel better. Um, people just kind of look at me funny. (laughs) (laughs) I think of the body, God, how did I language it? It's like the body's pretty innocent and highly intelligent. And whatever we don't say, we're asking our body to hold our secrets for us. And like you were saying earlier, if there's judgment in the field, but you're not speaking it, you can feel it. And I like to think of like the things that are unsaid become even more embodied, like like more and the body will then begin radiating this experience of judgment. And if you can share it and speak it, then the body doesn't have to hold on to it. And uh, so, yeah, I've, I've grown up singing. I've been a musician my whole life. My dad was a musician my whole life. And um, I didn't realize how much that was a gift until I was significantly older, until I was probably mid-20s and, like, stopped singing for a while and started to feel a lot more in my body. I started to just feel a lot more pain, a lot more discomfort. And there's so many ways to unpack like the mystical nature of what the throat is and, and the voice specifically. One, it's the only chakra in my understanding that's ha 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 relational, right? So this is the one place where we are in direct relationship with things outside of ourselves. And I don't, I mean, a lot of, there's a lot of subtle energy things happening in relationship in the other places of the body, but this is currently, especially with the way that we use language, the the function of communication is relationship. And it's the place between the head and the heart. What a horrible job that must be. And it's also, I think of um, from the throat down, we're embodied. It's like, and I think of the body as the unconscious. So it's the very edge of the unconscious. And from the head up, we're fairly disembodied. And so it's this bridge between the conscious and the unconscious. And as you know, um, through breath work as well, breathing, which I think is a very throat heavy activity, is how we bridge the unconscious and the conscious mind. And also through the way that language works, how we're projecting our shadows onto other people so that we can see them back. It has this deep multi-layered experience of like, um, yeah, stirring the pot between bridging the unconscious and the conscious experiences together and also having them be in relationship. And once again, to reference Carolyn Meese here, um, her understanding of the throat chakra is it's the seat of will. It's the seat of choice. And her definition of empowerment, which I love, is not letting fear make choices for you. And I think of the ultimate choice that we have and coming back to like the throat being the embodied experience and the above the throat being the not self, the more than self, the God experience, however you want to name it, that this is the place of surrender. And I could go on and on about it, but ultimately Carolyn Meese articulates it in the way of this is where we surrender to divine will. This is where the personal will, the body, the self meets divine will, the more than self, the community, whatever is more than me. And in the context of like singing, it can be really hard for people to sing because when they're afraid of, of what other people think, this is like the greatest, most common fear. We're terrified of each other. Fundamentally, it's, 
it's a root chakra issue as well at this point. But if, if, if I, air quotes again, in my sense of self, am singing and I am just generating this sound and I have these feelings and I have this experience, that can get really heavy. Whereas if I'm surrendering my sense of self to the divine will and realizing that life is just moving through me, that makes a different experience. I can sing differently if I let life move through me versus I'm just creating it. And so I know this is kind of far out there, but I really believe that the throat is a place of deep surrender, that this emotion is moving through me. This truth is moving through me. I don't have to control it or create it. I have this tight bound over identification with it. And not everyone can track or, or wants to go there with me on this, like surrendering to the divine will when it comes down to the throat. But like, I'll, I'll have people go into this meditation space of where does the sound come from in your body and how can, you know, I think of the, uh, the art of confession, right? Once again, I didn't grow up with religion, but I've, I've learned to learn how to use confession in a new way. And that what's happening there is we're offering a truth outside of our bodies vocally to then be forgiven. And another way to say that is just to not let have to have your body hold on to it. And there's a way of vocalizing even, um, not, not all people that I work with want to feel, feel the need to name their truths to other people, but even saying it out loud to yourself, there's a thing that happens when you're, you're, vocalizing, you're speaking, you're turning your body into an instrument. Like I can think about my truth all day long, but there's also 10,000 other thoughts happening. So it doesn't carry the same amount of density. But once I start speaking it, there's an entire body experience that's vibrating to make sound that then changes the way that you're honoring your truth or what you have to say, or your song or your secret or your love offering of adoration or your poem or something. And yeah, I just don't think that our bodies are meant to hold as much as they do. And through expression, there's a lightness of being that then gets to be played with in a different way. And I talk to myself a lot, so I don't know if that's always a good thing, but I'm, I'm a huge believer in the simplicity of, of becoming the instrument, the instrument of truth the instrument of love, the instrument of authenticity. And the voice is so unique on how we get to become. I mean, I am obsessed with listening to different people sing from all different walks of life, just like things that the human body can do. And I love all instruments, but I am infinitely more fascinated by the human body as an instrument because it's living, it's emergent. It has different tones and textures and to remember that we are an instrument for something. We're not just like stuck in this human thing and to feel that liberation. And it doesn't even have to be song, you know, just a simple, what does it feel like in my body to say, I love you after a phone, you know, love you too. Okay. Bye. Or what does it feel like in my body to look at you and be like, I love you. I love you. And even just the way that we can use language to have different tonalities that speak to the different parts of our truth that don't even need to be overtly spoken to, you know, it's so fun. And I also had 
the childhood of, of lots and lots of strep throat. And I had, I get, I get, my voice gets raspy a lot from like the, the decade of bulimia, you know, of just like wrecking my poor throat with these horrible experiences and like physical traumas and the voice as like on a biological level, the vocal cords are so tender. They're so subtle. It's so beautiful to think of how the, how embodied the experiences of truth telling and singing and expressing. And we think it's so mental and it's a really beautiful invitation to come back to the, the physical dance of what can happen there, what is happening there. Yeah. I love that. When I first learned that the, the physical body is offering us reflections of what's deep down happening inside energetically or in the subconscious, you know, and I, I have a story about how I actually ended up healing my acne by realizing that it was more energetic and emotional than, you know, bacterial or the things that we commonly think are causing acne. And what, what came to mind, and I wrote this down on my, in my notes as you were speaking is it's, it's like we already intuitively know we need to speak our truth to, to feel better. Like the, the phrase, I got to get it. I got to get this off my chest. Isn't that interesting that when someone is about to drop, you know, something big, they're like, I, I just got to get this off my chest. It's like, cause it's sitting right there and people will get flushed. I don't get flushing very much in my skin if it's red, but I know when people start flushing in their chest or their throat, I've experienced this enough to, I'll ask them, I'll be like, Hey, Hey, what do you, is there something you want to say right now? Or like what, what's there? And something very deep and emotional and profound will usually be sitting just right underneath the base of the throat. And, and then the flushing will go away once they bring it out. And for me, I know that I'm suppressing my truth when I get a, a rock in my throat. I will literally feel like I have an Adam's apple and that I, my throat will start to constrict and I'll like start choking on myself. And to, it almost feels like an energetic strangulation from the inside out. And the mind is powerful enough to say like, nope. I'm not letting that out. And then it will like push it back down and it's so uncomfortable. And that will manifest in some other type of physiological issue down the line. And so, like you said, the body is this vessel that's holding our truth. And the, the more we can treat it like a sacred vessel versus a garbage can, then the more that it will start to work in alignment with us. And so we're not just dumping all of our issues into it or keeping them there, I guess. We're allowing them to come out. We're letting it breathe into the air because the world, nature, the space around us can hold a lot more than these bodies. And our bodies do a lot for us. Yeah. But we ask, so we, so we, kind and we ask too much. <laughs> And I love the simplicity of thinking of right, like how the how the truth bubbles up from an embodied experience, and it's ready in the throat, and the mind comes down and says, "Uh, uh-uh. you're gonna you're not gonna be loved if you say that. You're gonna lose connection with this person if you say that. You don't know how they're gonna respond, and you don't have capacity to be in relationship with the mystery. So no, 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 no. Yeah, or it's not okay. You're you're not allowed to think this. You're not allowed to to disagree with this person. And that's why I think like the mental part of like that judgment that's like, that becomes the filter is the conditioning. And so I like one of my definitions for the authentic state is just the unconditioned state. 
the part that's not afraid to be exactly what it is. And I don't know anybody who gets to actually live fully in an, in an unconditioned state. You know, that's just part of our human experience this lifetime, and that's okay. But then the practice becomes how am I relating mind to body, mental capacity, manipulative capacity to authentic truth that's just pure bubbling up from the wellspring of my experience? How are those things in relationship to each other? And also, what do we value? Because if I value safety, and comfort, then the mind is going to win. But if I value intimacy and liberation, then maybe my embodied truth can begin. So I think also what happens in the throat when these energies are swirling around each other and it's like, who's going to, what's going to come out of my mouth? Nobody knows. I don't know how to do this. We have to like, look at what we have agreed to care about. And I think that there's a, the first class of Truth training is about renegotiating the terms of agreements with your fear because we all have fear. And that's the first thing that comes up with like, oh my God, I want to say this, but I can't. I have this lump in my throat. You know, in, in the breathwork practice, we have people practice toning. Some people just can't make sound in general. Like the blockage is happening in the throat is so somatic and it's so stuck. That's like, this is where the fear bubbles up. And it's like, I can, I can experience my fear. And nobody would know. But as soon as I open my mouth, that's too much. Now my fear is in relationship to other people and it's beyond my capacity to handle. And so I love being able to help people understand the nature of fear, that it's all related back to feeling something. I believe that all fear comes back to something that I don't want to feel. And so a huge part of the healing process of learning how to be in one's truth is learning how to be in your own feeling. Like if I want to be free, I have to be willing to feel. And once again, kind of like echoing on like what is freedom, it's not not having consequences, but it's expanding my capacity to feel the fullness of the human experience. I'm I'm creating a bigger domain where I get to then move about in. And there's a willingness that says, okay, I'm afraid of feeling judged right? Maybe that's the thing that comes up for most people. I'm afraid of being seen is another really common one that gets stuck in the way of like, why am I not sharing what I want to share right now? And the fear of being judged as an example has two functions. It's protecting you from feeling something that you don't want to feel. It's protecting you from feeling vulnerable because maybe your nervous system didn't have a capacity for vulnerability, but it's also preventing you from feeling something that you really do want to feel, which could be connection, you know, feeling really like connected to somebody or something, including yourself. And so the fear is a paradox. It's keeping you from and protecting you from something that you do and don't want to feel. And the only way to remedy the fear is to expand your capacity to be like, well, shit. Okay. I want to feel this thing. I want to feel connection. And that means I have to be willing to feel the thing that I don't want to feel, which could be vulnerability. Right, and you expand the aperture or the circle or the paradox of emotionality to be able to include it all. And that's when there's like then it's so brave to do this kind of work. It's so brave to choose to like begin walking down the path of authenticity or truth. Because it's not easy. And it doesn't mean that you're never going to feel things that you don't want to feel. It's like the greater question then becomes how can you 
learn how to be okay in the discomfort of feeling things that you don't like to feel. And I've had the privilege of having lots of experiences where I was like kicked off stage. I've been canceled. I've been shunned. I've been like humiliated. I've had all these different experiences that then taught me that the worst case scenario, the thing that I feared actually happened and I was okay. So my part, my path right now of feeling fairly fearless or free has come from the actual experiences of those fears coming true so that I could learn how to build my capacity in the edges of the wow. The worst case scenario happened. I said my truth and it really, really hurt somebody. That's a huge fear that people have. I don't want to cause harm. I don't want to hurt anybody. And inevitably, that's not something that, well, how do I say this? <laughs> it's going to be ridiculous. We're all going to hurt people, okay? It's true. I think the, the sooner we accept that, <laughs> yeah. the better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And part of this path is not to not cause harm, but also to not, like, like we were talking about earlier, not to not weaponize our truth and our authenticity, but to surrender once again to the fact that I don't get to control the outcome. And I believe that underneath the fear of being judged or the fear of hurting somebody, underneath all of it is a fear of not being in control. Yeah, this this reminds me of something Johnny and I say to each other, which is, it's not my job to not trigger you. You know, it's not my job to not bring stuff up in you and, and, and it's not my job to take away your discomfort or your irritation or your frustration. Like that is something that is being released inside of your body through whatever encounter or whatever it is that I just said. And, you know, to kind of wrap up the whole theme of all of this, it's like, I get to express my authenticity that might feel painful to somebody else to receive it. And can we stay in connection through that impact? Can you be mad at me because I did something and I owned, owned up to a part of myself and you're mad? Okay, well, that's welcome too. Like, it's this practice of like, all of it's welcome. And we just keep expanding that capacity, like you said. And really the word that came to mind is resilient. Like you have a resilience in speaking truthfully now. You have a resilience in the path of authenticity because of these really uncomfortable situations that you learned from and you survived, right? It's like one of the biggest reasons people think they're going to they don't want to do public speaking or they don't want to sing on stage at the retreat that I was in in Fiji recently. We did this whole freestyle beatboxing thing and the instructor of it was amazing because he had us warm up and like titrate up with these exercises. And then some of us got up on the stage with a microphone and we did it, including myself. And he, at the end, he goes, who died? Did anybody die? Who died? And it's like, nobody died. We all survived and if anything, we were all thriving at, on the other side of it. Yet our minds were telling us, no, 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 you're going to get kicked out of the tribe. You're going to, you're, and then you're going to starve and no one's going to love you ever again by just getting on stage and beatboxing into a microphone when you feel like an idiot. And this is all just hardwired into us because we are still, for the most part, operating on our primitive biological cognitive functioning. <laughs> And before we continue on, I also just want to, in the spirit of this conversation, acknowledge that we've gone quite a bit over time and 
I just want to make sure that you're still good. It's about 11 a.m. your okay. time. Okay, cool. About mm-hmm. another 10 minutes or so. And Perfect. That, but, yeah, I was like noticing this incongruence in myself of like, shit, like we've gone over and I never told her that could be a possibility. And maybe she's got a call and I don't know. And like, I got to <laughs> honor, I got to honor what's in the field right now and get a, a new round of buy-in on a new, you know, extended container, which now allows me to soften and be more present. <sighs> yes. What I'm hearing is like, a f- oh God, I don't know how to language it. It's just kind of coming into the field. But this sensation of fear shows us where our capacity is limited. Mm. And I don't know. It's just, um, I don't know if that's like a complete, um, <laughs> complete thought yet. But just noticing how I can think of my fears are showing me where my capacity is at. But that's not to say that capacity can't be expanded beyond right like my fear public speaking is such a fear and i've never well that's not true i used to be uh really stage fright doing the whole thing of like i'll sing you a song if you close your eyes or i'll just turn around while i sing a song or the whole thing and now i love i get off on it i love freestyle rapping i love freestyle singing i love putting myself in the fires of not knowing what's going to happen and i think underneath the, that that being like a performance aspect, I think I just love the emergent field, but I've had to increase my capacity to be an emergence, to be in the unknown, to be in relationship with the mystery that says, I don't know what's going to happen here. And that's more interesting than my conditioning that says, I'll only feel safe if I can know what's happening, or I'm only going to do this if I can control the experience. And so I think underneath a lot of this, it's helping people be in relationship with the things they don't get to control and knowing that that's not what life is about despite the um, popularity. <laughs> <laughs> the popularity of control or our, our Pop- sense of yeah. it. Control is so popular. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well put. And freestyling, something that I have noticed that was really fun. I'm curious if this is your experience as well. Um. I'll notice if I start freestyling and get really comfortable and like just let things start to move through me and half of it's kind of ridiculous. Half of it. I'm like, Oh yeah. Wow. Ooh, that was good. That was tight. That was amazing. The truth will just start to come out and then I'll start saying things and be like, Oh wow. Okay. I guess that's how I really feel. And there's a function there with like when the, when I quote unquote, the brain gets out of the way, like the truth is just like, let me at him. Let me out of here. And if we don't get out of the way, that's what I think you were mentioning something earlier with someone could be speaking one thing, but the tone of their voice or their body language or something is saying something else. And that's the, that's the, how much the truth wants to be known. It will find a way to be known. And then if we don't allow the truth to come out consciously, that's when it, like you were saying, I loved you referencing like the judgment of the other, like belittling the other person because like the way that the truth will fester and show up in other less healthy, less integrated, less aware dynamics. But like the truth wants to be acknowledged. It wants to be met. It wants to be related to. So the more that we don't allow that consciously, then it creates all of this weird, just incoherence in the field or like body language, or now you're like connecting to someone 
and you can, you just like, I don't know why, but I feel confused being in your company right now. Or like, I don't trust you. I have no idea why I don't trust you, but like something's just off here. And that can be so heartbreaking for people that don't understand why they're losing connection because they've lost it within themselves first, potentially. Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, I think that's really what it comes down to. If I'm not allowing myself to connect to my truth and offer it, then we can run around and have deep, meaningful conversations all day long. But as long as you're feeling something in me that I'm not allowing myself to acknowledge, it's only going to go so far. Mm -hmm. It's only going to go so deep. And I know in myself how badly I and most people that I see are craving deep intimacy and deep vulnerability. And that doesn't mean that we actually have a capacity for it, but we deeply want it. Yeah. And so this is part of the, like the heart of why do this? Because once you have that level of vulnerability and intimacy and connection with yourself and others, and you feel what life can feel like in that state, there's no going back, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And it starts with the self, like you've been saying. Yeah. People who are craving greater intimacy and connection in their life, I, I think it's common to be like, well, when the right person comes who will help me feel intimate enough or when they'll help me feel safe to be intimate enough, but it's because you're not allowing intimacy with the truth of what's happening inside of yourself. And I think about, I, I, there's a few people in my life that are very close to me where they will say one thing, the words, the content will say one thing. The tone will say another thing. The facial expressions and the body positioning will say another thing. You know, they're like, oh yeah, I accept you. But then you see them like retracting back and looking out to the side and like dodging their eyes. And you're like, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah, I really believe you right now. Not. And we, all of us, I think are calibrated to read those different cues, especially if you're empathic. Like if you're an empathic little child and your parents are saying one thing, but you're reading a completely different story, that is pure confusion. And it sends such mixed messages. What do I believe? Because I think I'm intuiting something else, but what you're actually telling me through your content is a different thing. And now I don't think I feel safe around you and I'm going to manipulate my own way of being in the world so that I can try and elicit the response out of you that I think I want, but that you're not naturally giving me. And that, uh, this idea of authenticity versus uh, secure attachment, which is a whole nother rabbit hole I know that we could dive into in the interest of time. I, I think I'll just put a pin there for our next conversation. But yeah, just an invitation for everybody to start their path of intimacy with the self. What I'm hearing is how other people's self-abandonment by not being able to express their authentic truth creates more self-abandonment in the field. Because like what I'm hearing you just say is when someone is doing that, then you start being like, oh, well, maybe I can't trust myself. Who do I, what do I know? They're not giving me this. And then there's like all this unconscious gaslighting that comes into the field. And so it works in the opposite way though. It's so complicated. Which is why the more that I have been able to cultivate a deep embodied practice and path of living where to the best of my ability in every moment, I'm going to try to speak for my truth. When someone asks me how I'm doing, I'm going to tell them the actual truth. I'm not going to sit there at the Thanksgiving dinner table. And be like, yeah, I'm good. You know, my answer last night was like, I've been feeling really, uh, overwhelmed, really, uh, dense in my physical experience and just whatever, you know, and just naming it. For, and it's a simple thing to just answer how am I doing, 
But in that moment, that's an offering to the collective field that gets created when any people are in relationship to each other that says, it's okay to speak how you actually feel. It's okay to be authentic here. It's offering permission. And then you can feel the field go a little bit deeper. Yeah. And this is, this is like the light that we get to hold for each other is a bit of this, like, you know, permissionary is a funny word that I like to think (laughs) of. We all get to permission each other and not to make a game out of it, but kind of that it can be fun to just say, I wonder what's going to happen. I'm just going to answer this question really authentically and just see where people are at. You know, it doesn't always have to be this, um, scary, oh my God, what are they going to think? Because then that's putting the other person's experience in your priority instead of, I would like to offer my authenticity here. And then just see what happens. Mm-hmm. So there's like a curiosity and a playfulness that can really help some of the dense fear and conditioning that's also very alive in the space. To just, what if all the things I feared were not maybe true here in this dynamic? Mm-hmm. What if I just said one really honest thing to see how it was received instead of continue to believe that? My honesty is not welcome here. Maybe that's not true today. Maybe it was true yesterday, but let's try again. And to like, yeah, be in the emergent field of what if I didn't know exactly how this was all going to go and I can live in the curiosity and I can meet myself new in a different way and I can meet these relationships new in a different way and rewrite the story because the more that we all continue to believe the old stories that my truth is not welcome here, that if I'm honest, I'm going to hurt people. These are all just stories. And more often than not, especially in like the truth training container, um, on confession day, it's the fun day. I have people like tap into their body and then we offer confession and beforehand, I'm like, how many people thought, raise your hand if you thought you were alone in your experience of what you just confessed. Everybody raises their hand. And then we do the confession and I'm like, all right, how many of you also felt what the other person said? Everybody raises their hand. Oh, well, isn't that interesting? Ha ha ha. We're not actually alone in the experiences that we think that we are. And so maybe this is adding a little piece here at the end of what we're choosing to believe versus the reality of experiences that we can open ourselves up to in curiosity and in vulnerability. And once we start sharing our truth, it's kind of like, how do you know that no one's going to love your truth if you've only shared it a couple of times, maybe to the wrong person or something, you know, like we... We have a handful of experiences that maybe have then been traumatic that now we let texture the whole range of our experience instead of like, okay, that was that experience. This is a different experience. Can I allow this to be new? You know, and that's, that's really helpful in the repatterning or the deconditioning of learning how to feel safe and being your authentic expression. Mm-hmm. Wow. Beautiful, Jenny. I know that we could just talk for hours and I so want to, and we'll have to put a pin here and just schedule a future interview. We'll pin it up. Maybe after uh, I go through a few rounds of your actual vocal empowerment and truth training containers with the Kickstarter and after you do the the live show in February and so many exciting things coming up for you. So to close, 
Can you tell our listeners, where can they learn more about you? Where can they learn more about truth training and what are, what's the timeline on that? Cause I know it's coming up. And then also like who, who is coming into this container and maybe where are they in their journey mm, to know if it's right for them? Yeah. Yeah. So you can find me everywhere uh, under the name, The Sacred Wholeness. Our website is just thesacredwholeness.com. And you can find my music if you want under, like on Spotify and Apple Music and all the things under Jenny Jolly, J-A-H-L-E-E. And yeah, Truth Training is, it's the third round of the Vocal Empowerment online course that I teach. That's just another iteration that's speaking a little bit more to the root of what's actually going on here which is the individual relationship to their own truth and their own embodiment and their own understanding of the self and the mind and the relationship between the mind and the body. And it's a pretty psychosomatic exploration that I do a lot less teaching and more just offering of contemplations to help people remember that they know that their truth is not something that they have to continue grabbing and seeking outside of themselves, that their truth is already completely alive within their embodied experience at all moments. And through remembering the simplicity of that, we can then orient ourselves to the greater relationships that are outside of us. And so this course is really for people that have a bit of trauma healing work under their belts, honestly, because it can be really triggering because we're asked, we're going directly into fear. We're going directly into the relationship that you have with your body. And so this isn't exactly a first course for some people, but it's not um, a completely comprehensive course on the psychology of truth either. So it's a fun middle path for those that are ready to make some change and that have enough of a self-curiosity to to let some of their self-identity be questioned a little bit. Mm. And with, with loving curiosity and with playfulness, honestly, And so people that want to learn how to sing, this works for that. This is where that came from, but it just goes to the root cause of what could be getting in the way of people learning how to sing. And this is also for people that feel like they're not living an authentic life. This is really a solution for inauthenticity. And however that shows up for individuals is is really broad. And we begin on December 8th Mm -hmm. and we'll have classes on Thursday nights, and we'll have places to just process the information and be in a council on Tuesday nights. And it'll be for eight weeks. So it'll take us through Christmas and New Year's, which I think is really potent for this kind of deep dive into the self-seeing and the self-connection during these dark winter months. And especially around the holidays when we're uh, around our families and we can look directly into the eyes of the places where a lot of our conditioning has come from. And oftentimes the family dynamic is where um, we people please or self-silence the most. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really excited for the ability just to support people in a really clever and loving and permissive way during um, the holidays, specifically when we get to choose how we show up in some of the most triggering relationships of our of our lives, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it also feels like feels a bit like an antidote to the false starts of new year's resolutions as well, 
because typically we're setting these goals and expectations for ourselves that are totally rooted in inauthenticity or not really having a deeper connection uh, to self. And so to, cr- to crest into a new year from a more grounded place within ourselves, I, I would get curious yeah. how the participants are actually going to look at the year ahead and what's going to really matter to them and how they'll make more value-based decisions of what they really Oof. want and need. Yeah. It sounds beautiful. We will link to truth training, to your website, to your music and Spotify and everything in the show notes. And is there any final words that you'd like to share about your work before I ask your final closing question? Oh, closing question. Cute. Um, (laughs) just the, just how much this matters. You know, I really do believe that this is the underpinning to so much relational Um, systemic, cultural grief. And I don't want to use the word problem, but there's definitely some problems. (laughs) And this, I've seen the way that just this simple practice of connection to one's own truth can, can change the world and change our perception of reality in so many different ways. And it's infinitely applicable. And I'm really grateful to have gone through my own trial by fire to at least be able to hold this in a really authentic way as well like this isn't something that I learned in a book and I'm teaching like what's being offered here is just the epitome of my life's experience and so I'm, I'm holding this from a place of deep humility and sisterhood and kinship and learning along as I go still with everybody who also wants to join me on the path and so just really really believe in this and I really believe in everybody who's choosing to step into this kind of self-connection at this moment in life too I think it's really really needed Mm, beautiful thank you jenny and to close with a final question if you could leave our listeners with one contemplative question for themselves that would support their own rewilding journey what is one question that you would drop into the field my favorite question that i love to ask people in an attempt to help them remember that knowing is not outside of themselves, that it's a deeply embodied experience, is this. What are you pretending not to know? And why are you pretending not to know it? Mm. On that note, thank you so much for being here, Jenny. This was an honor and a gift to meet you in this space, to weave this conversation together, and look forward to more. Yeah, thank you so much, Kelly. It's really fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wild on Purpose. Please think about writing a review and sharing it with your friends. If you'd like to learn more about my leadership offerings or join my newsletter, visit wildonpurpose.co. Lastly, I'd like to thank my podcast editor, Jabril Alsuhaimi, for helping me weave this audio journey together and all of those who have supported me along my path as a creator. Until next time, stay wild.